Our third Advent sermon continues our theme of looking at the horses of the Apocalypse, today looking at the black horse and its rider, who brings famine. Our readings are taken from Genesis 41 and Matthew chapter 6. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path, with your preacher, Samuel S. Thorpe. May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It might be asked why we're focusing on horses this Advent, when there are so many other four-legged creatures we could focus on during Advent such as a donkey, sheep, oxen, or even camels? Well, firstly, because we're in the season of Advent, traditionally a time of reflection and expectant anticipation of the return of Christ our Lord and Saviour, who will bring about the ultimate judgment and transformation of reality as we know it. Lent may serve as a time of preparation as we remember what has already happened for us at Easter, much as the Jews recall the Exodus and the Passover. Yet Advent looks forward. Just as Simeon was waiting for the birth of the Messiah, we too are waiting for his eventual return. This is why our theme this Advent is waiting in the world because that is where we find ourselves, complete with all its difficulties. Secondly, we're not focusing on horses. Rather, instead of simply using the traditional categories of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, we're acknowledging two things. The world is a difficult place, and the scriptures embrace that reality and invite us to engage with it with hearts of faith rather than minds of fear. By using the four horsemen of the apocalypse as our guide each week in Advent, we're able to look at the world seriously and to examine our hope in Christ. The apocalyptic symbols of the white and red horses could be described as signifying the evils of humanity. And those horses have offered us a chance in the last two weeks to reflect on the theme of conquest and oppression, of war and conflict. And today we turn to the third horse. John writes in Revelation 6, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse, Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. This, with the rationing of food for those fortunate enough to find work, has generally been understood as representing famine 
and it is particularly apposite for us to consider in the light of our own recent experiences of supply issues, especially as we contrast our own plans for Christmas meals with those of others. The United Nations World Food Programme estimates that some 957 million people across 93 countries do not have enough to eat. Of these, some 45 million people are assessed to be on the very edge of famine. In a category called IPC4, the emergency phase where people are subjected to what is called acute hunger. This is where access to food is a challenge and many may be malnourished. If things get worse, they would enter the catastrophic phase of fall famine, where there is the absolute inaccessibility of food to an entire population or subgroup of a population where starvation, death, and destitution are evident. Presently, that is the situation in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, with some 350,000 people worst affected. This is a situation which is tricky to find clear data on, owing to the ongoing war between the Tigray People's Foundation Liberation Front and the Ethiopian government. And between damage from fighting and the worst locust swarm in 25 years, the 2020 harvest was devastated. This is the worst famine since the 2011 famine in Somalia, which killed more than 250,000 people. In the last 10 years, there have been famines in South Sudan and West Africa due to droughts, and in Yemen, arising from the civil war and the subsequent blockade by Saudi Arabia. You may remember 20 years ago, the famine caused by the war in the Congo, where more than 2 million people died of starvation and disease. We're fortunate here in Great Britain, as we've rarely had famines, with the most notable examples being the Great Famine in Ireland and the Highland Famine in Scotland back in the 1840s. Before that, there was a smaller Irish Famine of 1740 and the English Midlands Famine of 1727. But that said, many individuals and families in our country are described by the government as being food insecure. This is broadly defined as being unsure if they can acquire an adequate quality or sufficient quantity of food in socially acceptable ways. Prior to the pandemic, this applied to 5 million people. During the lockdowns, this rose to 7 million, with many of those being children who had been dependent on school meals. Although people here in Dis and Royden are generally all right, the Waveney Food Bank report that they've had a 450% increase in three-day emergency food supplies distributed during the pandemic. Even if we step back from the extremes of famine, it's undeniable that inflation and issues with supply chains have sent our weekly grocery bills upwards, with shortages of CO2 impacting meat packaging a few weeks ago, as well as fertilizer shortages around the world. It seems likely that food prices will continue to rise 
and affect us all. The story of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream about the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine is therefore a natural one for us to turn to. What is there that we can learn from this story? Perhaps we might latch on to the very sensible notion that when you've got knowledge of an upcoming situation, you should plan accordingly. This works whether the data shows seven years of famine or whether it's indicative of climate change or models of what might happen next in the pandemic. Be informed, make a plan and hope for the best. Indeed, Joseph's proposals that they should store up grain each year in anticipation of a famine was such a good one that Pharaoh elevates him to essentially rule over all of Egypt, second to no one bar Pharaoh, a dramatic promotion from the jail cell he had just been in. But to focus on planning for the future is to miss out an essential component of this story. The data, the knowledge, all hinged upon the interpretation of a dream. A dream which none of the magicians and wise men of Egypt could interpret. Joseph, remembered by Pharaoh's cupbearer who had had a dream interpreted before, was very much a last-ditch effort to find an interpretation. And when asked, can you interpret this, he replied, It is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is here that we find the most profound detail around which the success of the entire story hangs. It is not the wisdom of Joseph which saves Egypt and the surrounding nations who will come to them for food, but the grace of God at work in Joseph. So does this mean that we shouldn't plan for the future, but rather trust God to provide for us out of thin air? Or how we love to set up false binaries, yes or no questions, where sometimes the answer is both and. One of the many titles of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, as Abraham names him for providing the ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament, again and again, God provides in thoroughly practical ways, such as the manna and quail to sustain the Israelites in the wilderness, the flour and oil which lasted far longer than it should for Elijah the widow and her son. Again, Elijah was fed by ravens in the wilderness, and Samson was provided with water when he was mortally faint with thirst. While God can and does provide supernaturally, often it's more cooperatively. We work for land and he blesses our efforts with food, a concept which we should all be confident in, given the significance that so many place upon the harvest festival service each year. But whatever form God's provision comes in, we should never lose sight that every good and perfect gift comes from God above, and that every scene, every circumstance which arises in God's creation, arises in God's creation. This means that a proper analysis of any situation 
cannot focus purely on the human perspective to the exclusion of the divine. The big picture always has a theological dimension to it. Pharaoh had the data of his dream, but all of the human wisdom available to him was insufficient to prepare Egypt for the impending famine. It was by the presence of the Holy Spirit with Joseph that both a clear vision of the future and a plan for it were presented. And in our Gospel reading from Matthew, we were reminded by Jesus that God knows what we need even before we ask for it. But we should still ask for it. God's knowing does not make our asking redundant, but rather it offers us a confidence that he will hear us and will provide for us when we place our faith in him and pray as he has taught us so to do in the Lord's Prayer. We've recently had a good time in our Discover groups, spending time on each line of the Lord's Prayer, and each session has revealed just how rich it truly is. And the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, is deceptively simple, yet immeasurably deep. It refers to our physical needs. And for Christians in times of famine, this takes on a more pressing significance than it likely does for those of us here today. But it has also always been associated with the bread of life, the word of God made flesh, by whom the gospel has been revealed. That Jesus Christ lived and died for sinners and was resurrected to life unending as an eternally prevailing promise of salvation. A salvation which is truly good news for us. But it is just as surely good news for those who are starving, those who are food insecure, those who are in need. My repeated theme throughout this series, but also at the heart of every sermon I preach, is that the gospel is not a nice, cosy fairy tale abstracted from the reality of the world, but is actually the truest story at the heart of reality itself. Jesus knew pain. Jesus knew death. And fasting in the desert for 40 days at the start of his ministry, Jesus knew hunger. The gospel therefore challenges our temptation to instant self-gratification. Sometimes, indeed most of the time, we have to spend time in the holy discomfort of reality and face it head on. We can't simply ignore beggars or titter about class sensibilities. We shouldn't plan a large Christmas dinner with more food than we need if we know that a neighbour on our road will only have beans on toast. We can't pretend that our faith is a private fairy tale to make us feel good about ourselves. So I encourage us all to reflect in the week ahead on how we can help those around us whose needs we are aware of. How we, as people of the gospel, can be good news to those who are struggling. And I'd remind us to always keep an open eye to look for God's perspective in each situation, recognizing that we cannot do anything good by ourselves, but only by the help and grace of the Holy Spirit.
So let us resolve this morning to come in humility to his table and to receive in the bread of the Eucharist the body of Christ broken and given for us so that we might have the hope of eternal life on the last day when Jesus Christ comes again. For there is hope, hope in the face of conquest, hope in the face of war, and hope in the face of famine. There is yet one more horse, one more disaster for us to confront this Advent. So I invite you to join me next week as we consider the pale green horse and its rider whose name is Death. Amen. Amen.